So we're back and we're talking about transportation today and how the way we move around shapes our lives, not only physically, but socially too. I'm sure many of you are on the move right now. Let's talk about daily commute times to work. The average commute time for Canadians on bikes, motorcycles and cars is around 20 to 25 minutes. But the average time for those of us taking public transit is 43 minutes. That's double. And commute times add up. Studies show that longer commutes have impacts on mental health, safety and finance. So we turn to cars when we can. And in May 2023, studies found that 1.3 million Montrealers commuted to work by car. And just a few months ago, as I said before, Quebec invested in a multi-billion dollar electric vehicle battery plant. This is a big project, and some call it the future. But for those wanting real investment in Quebec's public transit system, this is not hopeful news. A couple days ago, 50 mayors in Quebec signed a petition urging the CAC for a serious investment into public transport. So let's talk about car culture and transportation with Lancelot Rodrigue. Lancelot is a transport researcher at McGill's School of Urban Planning with a background in geography as well. Lancelot, how are you doing today? I'm doing very good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. Welcome on the show. Uh, So when we connected earlier, I asked you what draws you to your research. And you told me that you're interested in the decisions that we make as a society that shape our world. Can you paint us a picture of what that means and explain some of your research? Well, yeah, the main main element I'm really interested in is that I think fundamentally, when we think about big projects, big infrastructure, how we organize our cities, it, we don't necessarily realize just how long the impacts will be lasting and for how many generations. So for me, what's really driving my research is understanding in the past the decision that we made that impacted how we live now and how can we shape the future of how we're going to live our daily lives uh, later on by shaping how we organize our cities, the public transportation uh, system that we're putting forth. So, And I think fundamentally what it goes to is that in order to, if I go really to my interest in transportation, in order to um, get around, you need to have places to go. So you need to have uh, different land usage to go to. But in order to be able to um, have a public transportation networking, you also need to be able to um, have these investments, have, have, have the, the support uh, of, uh, of different political, uh, political levels. Um, so... The main interest for me is really all of these different interacting uh, factors of political interest and also long-lasting impacts that we can have on our cities. Thank you for that. Speaking of political interests, um, but maybe on a little historical perspective, let's talk about the history of transit in Quebec. Um, How much is car culture as we call this, embedded into our society? Because, you know, compared to older countries like in Europe and the Middle East, we're looking around, it seems as though Canadian cities were built with cars in mind. Is that even true? Well, it is to a certain extent, but like we have to look back a bit, a bit like a uh, hundred years ago, if we look at the start of the 20th century, um, there, was, there was like a lot more focus on public transit, particularly in Montreal. Um, Streetcars were present. There was a good network of streetcars. People were mostly moving around with these. It's really after the second, uh, after World War II, that car culture really started expanding with a big infrastructure boom, big investment in highways, and that really shaped the last 70, 80 years. So it's really when we saw, we started seeing like a a lot of of shift from community or public transportation 
to really individualize perception of transportation. So in that sense, we really saw a shift where the priority was put onto cars first and foremost above everybody else, and all other road users became secondary. So it's not, it's, it's been embedded for the last 70, 80 years, but there's still remnants in our cities that are um, indicative of like previous um, focus on public transportation, active transportation. So there's still room to do so, but like many other North American cities, um, the, the really the big growth that, that has been done in the cities, the, the, the suburbs and everything, it's really been done with car in mind. So there's a really predominant car, car culture that is, yes, embedded in, in, in Canadian cities. And when we're talking about car culture, car culture, for those who don't know, we're talking about a big reliance on cars. Um, yeah, what does that really mean exactly? Yeah, well, it means it, it primarily means that it's not necessarily that people are in love with cars. It's just that you need to have a car across most Canadian cities for a lot of people. If you're not really in the, in the downtown core or the really central areas in big cities, you need to have a car to be able to move around, to be able to do your daily your, your daily tasks, your daily activities. And it's not necessarily that it is a choice that you want to do, because people don't even perceive that they have a choice. It's a it's a necessity. So everything is shaped for you to move around by car. All the destinations are, most of them will have parking lots. So it's really just shaping people, not having a choice in how they they get around and being forced to use a car. Right. What is Quebec's history of investment into transit now? Like, did transit used to be better when less people had cars or when we're talking before the boom around the Second World War? Well, again, like transit was, it's, the, the, the service was at the moment really meant to get people to and from work, whereas now we're understanding that there's a there's a lot more uh, nuance in how people move around. So I would say, at that time, the service was probably ideal for the type of of of, um, of trips that people were doing. But nowadays, like we need to in- integrate the fact that people will have hobbies; they'll be moving for other uh, for other type of um, for other purposes. But also in terms of history of investments, we, we in Quebec we've seen that there was there was a boom with like the metro in Montreal for the Olympics, but it really halted like in the mid '80s. And then we had another, again, like in 2000 with like the extension to Laval. And then since then, it's only been the REM pretty much and nothing else. So the, the investments have been pretty scarce. And it's usually a big, a big, big investment every 10 to 20 years and then nothing in between. Okay, so the in, the amount of investments they're making is not really indicative of how much more we're moving as a society. It's just... No, not really. It's like, I would say these investments, the best example would be if we contrast it for like some European cities, or for instance, Paris, which is building like new metro stations every year. So there, they, every year there's not a, a, as much of a big investment, but it's so sustained through time that when you look at, at the longer period of time, there's a lot more that's been invested uh, to, to further public transit, whereas here it's no, no one's doing anything for the longest part. And then at one point, it's like, okay, we need to do something because we need to catch up. So we'll do a big, big project. And then it'll be very controversial because no one has been used to have this kind of project for like 10, 20 years. And it's be, it'll be hard to get through. And then once, once it's that people are like, okay, we don't touch it anymore for another tw- 10 to 20 years because that was too difficult. Mm-hmm. I mean, how how are we doing compared to other provinces like Ontario, for example? Are, why is there not investment, I guess, is the obvious question here. Well, yeah, uh, compared to Ontario, I would say uh, Quebec is doing pretty poorly, very poorly, actually. Um, if we just compare Toronto and Montreal, Toronto has, a, has many, many 
rapid transit, uh, public rapid transit projects that are online that are actually in the works and being built. Whereas in Montreal, we're yes, we have the RAM, but that's pretty much it. And like all the other projects that have been put forth have been studied and, and going back to the drawing board. So the main elements behind that, it, I think, is really down to the politicization of um, a transportation project. I think in Ontario, they have much more, they, they have separated the, the, the transportation projects a lot, a lot more from politics. So it's really like planners, transportation planners, urban planners that are working to do these projects that have the means to do them to and that have the respect from the provincial government to do so, whereas in Quebec we don't have that as much. Um, they, they still not, there's not as much respect for public transit agencies or the regional agencies to plan for these projects, and not as much, uh, they don't have as much power to do so. And so we have a lot more of, of integration of, of politics into projects, which makes them much more controversial and much more difficult to apply. Mm-hmm. I want to come back to this, um, you know, public perception, polit- even like the the priorities of, of governments and decision making like this. But I also want to stick, come back to car culture and the social effects, because you told me uh, earlier when we connected that there are a lot of things we don't realize um, about how living our lives very reliant on cars makes us feel. What are the social impacts? Yeah, I mean, a lot of time with something that people don't often think about is just when you're commuting by car, you're usually not taking in your surrounding as much as if you're in public transit or if, if you're walking, if you're cycling. So you're interacting less with people, you're interacting less with your environment. So all that you're seeing is just other car, which is very dehumanizing. So you're not having as much of an experience with uh, being able to appreciate the landscape, being able to have interactions with people. So it, it creates an environment that's much more dehumanized and sometimes that can lead people to, to feeling isolated as well. Um, so that's something that often is not uh, thought about in terms of social impacts of of car culture. And, and aside from that, there's also all the elements that goes with um, health impacts, the, the, the elements of like you're not moving, you're sitting down in your car maybe for two hours, being in, in traffic, whereas if you were taking public transit or walking, you would be doing some, some physical activity, which would be good as well for your mental health. So it, it would, it, these are really kind of insidious uh, effects of car culture that, that often we kind of forget about because it's so omnipresent in our lives. Mm-hmm. Because cars are branded so much as freedom. You know, if you have a car, you can go anywhere, anytime. You're more free, but I guess um, that's not completely true in some cases. Well, it's it's a bit paradoxical because it's free solely in the context that we are in where you need to have a car to move around. But in context that you would not need to have a car to move around, a lot of people wouldn't choose cars because they're 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 kind of a, they're metaphorically like they're a cage in which you put yourself to move around. You're not interacting with people. So they're free simply because we made them to be because in the society in which we live in you need to have a car, but should you not need to have a car, the the, the, the same the same idea would probably not be present. Right, I hear that. So I don't know if you've been following much of the North Vault uh, project out in McMasterville and saint basile le grand What is your impression, just in general, of the impact that investing into electric vehicle battery production will have? Well, I would say from uh, starting with the positive, the, the, the main thing with uh, EVs and electric vehicles is really like the main goal is to reduce uh, greenhouse uh, gas emissions in the transportation sector on the long term. So that's a positive element to have to that. But otherwise, the main problem that I have often when people are, are talking about the electric vehicles is that 
they're framing it as being the, the, the one solution to all problems in transportation. But the reality is that whether it's a, ga- a car, the, um, a gas car, an electric car, an autonomous car, it, it really doesn't change anything to the individualized vision of transportation in the city that's, that we have that's stemming from car culture. All of these type of cars are still going to get caught in traffic. Um, so it's fun- fundamentally not just replacing the type of car that we need, but it's reducing the number of personal vehicles on the roads to allow for the reconversion of really car-centric environment to be at the human scale to allow people to allow space for other modes of transportation. So yes, um, batteries production will be good from uh, a greenhouse gas emission standpoint, but it's not going to solve all problems that we would have in terms of transportation. Right. Something that did uh, decrease, I guess, ridership, even on the roads, was COVID. I know we all don't like to go back to the pandemic, but it happened. (laughs) And um, it really put a pressure on the public transit system. I'm wondering, in in your perspective, how did the public transit system in Quebec cope with that major decrease in ridership? Um, It's still, I would say, probably not very well. Like, we're still coping with it in the sense that we're still overing, hovering around like 70 to 80 percent of pre-pandemic levels, which means that like the revenues that we're getting from, from the fares and like people paying to use public credit are, are down still, which has led to um, a lot of, of issues with uh, short budget shor- shortages, which is a big problem because the more, if, if you can't make your budget, you need to have cut somewhere and if you cut in service you're going to further affect ridership which is going to lead to further cut in service which goes into a downward loop so the main issues with covid it's really that it's put a big strain on public transit um on public transit finances and there's not necessarily a big um a big in a lot of attention being put from the provincial government into actually filling that, that shortage. They're more trying to argue about what's the nature of the shortage, what are they trying to fill it and ensure that public transit will be able to continue running. Mm-hmm. I know in some places, um, in some cities in North America, they've done studies or they did at the time of COVID to see where um, the demand was highest for public transportation. Did Montreal, did Quebec do that? Um, what kind of services were cut and maybe are there still... Uh, areas, for example, that have less services now? Yeah, well, in, in Montreal, actually, like, there's one city that looked at 40 cities across North America, and what they found was that uh, Montreal didn't do much cut, but where they tended to cut was um, mostly, was more in lower-income areas and higher-income areas. It's not necessarily voluntary, but that's an outcome of like the, the cuts that were done, maybe because they weren't careful to, to look at these elements. And at the moment, there are still issues where you have really expensive uh, routes to, to run like, that are going maybe to the West Island or that are running like just in the downtown core that uh, are still running, but uh, that, are, and that are not necessarily serving people that need them the most. But you'll have really busy bus lines that are running on big arteries in Montreal that are very much used by a lot of low-income people that are going to work. And... These were heavily cut because they were the most, they, they were the easier wanted to, to give cuts because they were the one that had the most frequency because they were the one that was the most used. So there's still issues in trying to rectify the service to reflect um, to reflect the usage of people and to, to promote increased equity. Um, but that's a, a, a task that, that's really uh, still uh, to be done. And when we spoke earlier, you told me that at the end of the day, and this is something 
pretty central to your research, is that what impacts transport most is the public's perception of it and the, the its projects, people's experience using it. So we're in a moment of increasing public distrust in the government, to say the least. Tell us how public perception plays a role currently. Yes, I think, uh, well, public perceptions are really like what people experience at the end of the day regarding a project, regarding a public transit when they're using it. You can try to make the service as good as possible. If people don't perceive it as being good, they're not going to continue using it. Or if you do a project and you, if we gave, take the example with the, the with Norval, if you do a project and you don't necessarily want to go to the BAP or like the, do the, the environmental assessment, even if it's or in, a, in the perspective of trying to really push for a, a better change, it, it gives the impression of a lack of transparency, of lack of, of respecting processes. And people are pushing back even more with that. We saw that as well in Montreal with the Hemdeles, which was kind of similar issues. And people are really pushing back with the idea of trying to bypass due process and bypass um, public consultations and um, not have transparency. Because exactly in the moment that we're right now, there's a lot of distrust. And it's really, really crucial if we want to be able to have public transit or projects that, that work, that are actually implemented, to follow, to take a bit more time, follow process, and and include different actors, be transparent to make sure that we really build trust in the, the institutions, so that we, on the long term, we can continue and really and really ramp up the implementation of new public infrastructure. Right. So you're saying that this also played a role in the REM project, for example. That they did they do a BAP for that one. For the, for the REM project, yes, it did do a BAP, which um, the menu recommendation was actually to not build the projects and that there were other alternatives that would be more beneficial and that would cost less and have less of an impact on the environment and on uh, on just on just social aspects as well. But this was disregarded. Um, so that was a, a big issue as well for the project, which led to a lot of people being um, angry and frustrated again with uh, the project, which doesn't really lead to a good impression when it's the really first big transportation project in a really long time in Quebec. Right. Yeah. Some local residents, as well as Quebecers broadly, feel a deep sense of lack of transparency I, in this REM case and in also the case of the Northvolt uh, battery plant project. And for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, the BAP, the BAPE, is an environmental regulations test. It assessed, it assessed the risk. Um, it holds public consultations, I guess. But consultation is an interesting word in this sense. As you say, even when a BAP is completed, um, it's not necessarily going to change the end result of a project. It still probably will go through. Um, why is the transparency of public perception is so, or if the public perception is so crucial to the success of big projects like these, why aren't the government or, you know, companies that are constructing these taking this more into account? Wouldn't it just be way less of a headache? Well, that's, that's kind of a, of a paradox that they have the perception themselves that, they they need to go faster. They need they need to bypass these elements to go faster to be able to do the project as they want. In the case of the RAM, was to do a project that was that would be lucrative um, for for the promoter. But the the main the main issue is that these again are perspectives that come from people that are not acquainted with public transportation planning or urban planning. Because when you know a bit more about the field, you know that this is actually the wrong way to go about it. It's actually going to hurt your uh, chance of implementing a project in the long term. 
but because it, it comes from maybe more of a uh, of a private angle, um, there's this perception again of we don't need to do public consultation. We know how to do uh, the, the project. We'll do it our way, and let's not consult with everybody else. But the reality is that when you're doing urban planning or transportation planning, you need to consult different actors because what you're working on is a major societal project that has impact on a lot of different people. And if you want to make sure to have the best project possible and the most efficient one, it goes with working with different actors to do so. Mm -hmm. So back to public transit investment, maybe to lead off on a higher note, or maybe not. (laughs) Um, You know, 50 municipal mayors in Quebec are calling for the government to invest in public transit. And this is coming a few days before the Minister of Finance is going to announce the the, uh, the CAC's budget. Um, do you think that investing in public transit aligns with the priorities of the current government? Um, if not, you know, what, what strategies are necessary to invest uh, and to shift away from cul- car culture? Well, I would say in terms of priorities, I, I wouldn't be able really to, to, to assess that because sometimes it looks like it is, sometimes it looks like it, it's not. It's been going a bit back and forth. Um, but it's sure in the prospect, if they want to, they want to put kind of a, a green transition uh, as a big uh, element of their platform, then yes, investing in public transit is crucial. And it's about securing funds for transit agencies, for municipalities to provide the service right now so that they can increase service to have an impact right away on, on people and also having a clear long-term plan and like clear investments, larger project to, to start doing now and to, to start planning for in the future. And this all boils down main, mainly to being able to go and depoliticize public transit projects. So we'll, it will be interesting to see if the new uh, provincial agency that's in the work for a public transit project would allow to achieve that because that would be really a big element of being able to depoliticize public transit projects um, if we if we really want to be able to move away from call culture in the future. Right. Well, thank you so much for talking us, to us today, Lancelot. That was Lancelot Rodrigue on car culture. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me.